you're an instrument-rated pilot in IMC on an ILS approach in a complex airplane. You configure for landing and lower the gear handle, but nothing happens. Do you go missed approach? Do you declare an emergency? How will you deal with this situation? We'll hear from aerobatic superstar Michael Goulian as he discusses that very scenario and shares a story about the dangers of get-home-itis on this episode of I Laughed. I learned about flying from that. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 17 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast, sponsored by the Avemco Aviation Insurance Company. I'm your host, Rob Ryder, and today I'll have a very interesting discussion with Michael Goulian, one of the best-known airshow pilots in the world. Mike won't be talking about loops, rolls, spins, and tumbles, but about dealing with ATC and get-home-itis, things he did right and things he didn't do right. Two very interesting stories and the lessons learned. We'll check in with Michael right after this word from Avemco. For 60 years, Avemco has built its reputation on the kind of personal service only they can provide. Ask one of your flying friends who has Avemco. Better still, how about asking one who's had a claim with Avemco? Want to save up to 25% on your annual premium? For details, call Avemco at 800-338-8705, 800-338-8705, Avemco Insurance Company. Coverage personalized for what you fly and how you fly it. Now, I learned about flying from that. Michael Goulian is a name known by just about everyone in the aviation industry as an airshow performer, through his work with Cirrus Aircraft, his accomplishments as a former U.S. National Aerobatic Champion, also a Red Bull Air Race pilot where he won the race at Indianapolis and is one of only three pilots ever to kiss the bricks at the famous Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Welcome to I Laughed. Hey, Rob. Thanks a lot for having me. This is going to be fun. <laughs> we, the sad part is we know each other too well and we could probably swap stories for about three hours. Absolutely. Mike, you've had an impressive career, winning all three of the major awards that an airshow professional can receive. The International Council of Airshows Sword of Excellence, that's the Oscar. The International Council of Airshows Art Shoal Memorial Showmanship Award, the highest award a, a performer can receive in the airshow business. And World Airshow News Bill Barber Award for Airshow Showmanship that's given every year at EAA AirVenture Oshkosh. Those things are really important to you, aren't they? They really are. You know, as a as an aerobatic competitor or as an airshow pilot, you want to be recognized amongst your peers as have been doing a good job, right? And I think for me, my dad was in aviation his whole life, and obviously the same with me. He introduced me to flying at 15 years old, and um, you want to you want to know that you've sort of had an impact on the business in a positive way. And for me, winning those awards, uh, it lets you know that your peers think highly of what you've done and that you're respected. And I think that's all that anybody can ask as a, as an athlete or uh, a competitor. 
um, or or an airshow pilot as well. So it's it's flattering, but it's also it's also a little affirmation that lets you know, hey, you're doing the right thing. And you have done the right thing for many years, even writing the book on advanced aerobatics. You co-authored that book. You have helped a lot of people learn to fly crazy figures in the sky. Yeah, I hope so. You know, to me, they're not crazy. Um, <laughs> sometimes I think that uh, aerobatics done high in the sky and an airplane that's capable of doing it is probably, you know, safer than flying IFR and an airplane that's not, you know, not a technically advanced airplane and you know you're you're risking your life on one vacuum pump and I'm like nah I'd rather fly upside down any day so I think it's all it all matters it's a matter of your perspective I, I think was, yeah the perspective that's the word that comes to my mind um, but your flying has not been limited to that you have had a, a great career as a corporate pilot and a, a flight school operator along with your family tell me a little bit about that kind of work that you've done yeah, so it, as you alluded to, my family owned a flying school outside of Hanscom Field, a Part 141 school uh, for almost, well, actually for more than 50 years. And so I grew up in that business and started by fueling every airplane that we had under the sun about a thousand times and cleaning more bugs off the leading edges of airplanes that I would ever care to remember. Uh, but that's <laughs> how you learn the business and that's how you sort of fall in love with it. And then I became a flight instructor and then the chief instructor for our school uh, underneath my dad. So I've done a lot of hiring and training of flight instructors. And also during that time, uh, supplemented my income by flying corporate in part 91 in King Airs and then part 135 in Alir. Uh, 35, which was a great airplane. I loved, I loved that airplane a lot. And then um, now, more recently, I'm helping Cirrus train uh, and support the Vision Jet. And that's a big deal because of the the reputation that Cirrus has. And you are kind of their poster boy, aren't you? Oh, I don't. You know, I don't know. I I, <clears throat> I believe in their product a lot for the safety that. Uh, is built into the airframe. And now, even more so, I believe in their training, right? And, and uh, Cirrus is the only manufacturer that actually has a training program, a training department within their company, unlike any other manufacturer. They care about the flight training that the people are getting and the quality of it. So uh, they do an unbelievable job. And so I became in, more involved with Cirrus when they created their Cirrus approach program, which is their training arm. And, and so once they started to do that, the safety of the airplanes uh, or the safety record of the airplanes went up and up and up because essentially now if you're going to fly in a modern Cirrus, you basically get a little bit of a, a mini type rating, if you will. So it's pretty, pretty awesome. And you're experience as a corporate pilot and working with companies like Cirrus and flying the kinds of airplanes that you've flown have actually gotten you into some situations where you have had to be Johnny on the spot and and really deal with emergency situations. And there was one you were telling me about where you were on an ILS and you had a problem with the airplane that caused you to have to deviate from the normal procedures. You want to set us up on that entire scenario? Sure. Um, this was 
quite a few years ago. Actually, my wife and I were married, but we didn't have our daughter Emily yet. So probably about 17 years ago, 15, 17 years ago, we uh, owned a Cessna 182 RG, which is a, a really nice airplane. And we were coming home from an event and it was about, it wasn't a terrible weather day, probably six or 700 overcast. And the the tops of the clouds were pretty flat and nice at about 4,000 feet or so. So it was just a, a layer and it was, it was pretty much clear above. And at the end of a long air show weekend, as you well know, you're pretty tired. And Karen, Karen and I were getting vectored for uh, the approach to the ILS. And we were now, we descended into the clouds and coming up on the final approach fix for the ILS to runway 29 at Hanscom Field, where I was based, uh, I put the gear down and nothing happened. So uh, just like you would get in a simulator in corporate training, uh, it happens at the worst possible moment. So crossing the final approach fix, throw the gear down, and then nothing happened. So like we train for, there's a couple of seconds worth of, is it really doing that? Because you, you don't, you don't really believe it. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Uh, this is, this is actually happening. So I did a, a misapproach, told the tower that, Hey, I have an unsafe gear indication, which was really no gear indication. Uh, in a 182 RG, you can see the main gear come out the window and they were clearly up and they said, hey, okay, uh, shoot the published mist. And I very quickly was like, I'm not going to go try to navigate while I'm doing all of this. And I said, negative, I don't want to shoot the published mist. I have a gear problem. I would like to get vectored uh, around, and I would like a climb out of the top of the cloud so I don't have to deal with this IMC. And uh, they were great. Obviously, it was a Sunday afternoon after an air show. So I don't think there was a ton of traffic and they climbed us up to, I think probably about 5,000 feet came out of the top of the clouds. Now you're back in the sunshine. Uh, so your stress level immediately goes down. And then at that point, I asked him for just a big box pattern in the sky while I pulled out the manual, tried to troubleshoot what was wrong with the gear. And they did that. And it was uh, it was really great. So they just gave me, you know, a big traffic pattern in the sky uh, with big, long legs. Well, let me and ask you, said, let me ask you this, Michael. Did did you declare an emergency at that point? No, because, you know, to me, it wasn't an emergency. If the gear wasn't going to come down, then I would say that it would be an emergency. But I'm like, nope. But it was just one of those things where. <clears throat> We talk about in our flying what what being a pilot in command really means, right? And being the pilot in command, it 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 changes based on the on the scenario you're in, right? And so that's one of those moments where ATC is they don't understand what's happening inside your airplane. They don't understand sort of the the task saturation of the pilot. They don't know your proficiency or who you are, whatever you are, right? They have their job to do. And you as a pilot, you have a job to do. And, and your job is to uh, ensure the safety of flight 
no matter what the situation was. So I immediately, you know, put on my PIC hat and I, I, I started to tell ATC what I wanted. I didn't want them to dictate to me what they were going to do to me. And I think that's the biggest lesson that, you know, that I took away from that and, and probably the listeners can take away too. It's like, Hey, ATC doesn't know what's happening in your airplane and only you do. And, and you are responsible for the safe outcome of that flight. Right. So, uh, for me, I was like, I don't want to be in the clouds while I'm trying to do this. And, uh, and then I also don't want to be in a really tight holding pattern. So, Hey, get me out of the clouds, give me a long legs and, just vector me around so I don't have to think about anything because I had a nice autopilot in the airplane. That was going to be my next question. Were you able to engage the autopilot or ask or ask Karen to at least guide the airplane, keep the wings level and stuff while you did that? So, so you were able to then spend – how much time did you spend sorting that out once you got into the book and you got the autopilot engaged and they started turning you and keeping you in that big rate – probably a racetrack about 15 times bigger than the Indianapolis 500 speedway. Yeah, I'm thinking probably, probably so. And, uh, you know, I had the auto, so I turned the autopilot on, it was on in altitude hold and, and heading mode, which is all I needed. And then, um, quickly realized that it just wasn't going to come down. So I just went through the procedure and if you know, in the Cessna, you just have to pump the gear down, which we did. And it, and then locked it into place and it came down and stayed down and was happy. And then at that point I told ATC, okay, I have a three green indication ready to come and shoot the approach. And so, uh, at that point it was just radar vectors back to the ILS come down the bottom, um, of the ILS break out of the clouds and do the, the most gentle landing you can at that point. Right. Cause you, <laughs> you still don't trust the gear. Uh, even though there and, are three green lights on even it, even though huh? there are three green, you still are like, are you sure? Um, so it, it turned out, it turned out really well. And, um, you know, there was, there was no repercussions and they like, do you need any equipment? I'm like, Nope, I'm fine. It was great. And now, now, 15 years later, I actually forget what was actually wrong with the gear. It was probably some kind of an electrical micro switch or something in the handle that uh, made it not not come down. But, uh, yeah, that's one of those things where, like I said, some that's, that's something that was taught to me by the people that I was mentored by in the corporate world, right? It, and so um, if you're a corporate pilot – you're flying in and out of New York a lot. And if you live in Boston, you live in, you uh, live in a busy airspace. So New York, DC, they're all, they're all asking you to do all kinds of miracles with speeds and altitudes and descent rates and everything else. And you learn as a young co-pilot, sometimes it's possible and sometimes it's not. And if, ATC asks you to do something that you're not comfortable with or you're not able, even if it kind of puts a, you know, puts a dent in the works, you, you still have to say, no, I can't do it. And I learned that pretty early in my career. Uh, and then also, you know, in corporate flying, sometimes the, the passengers will push, right? They, uh, they don't understand the weather and things like that. So you very quickly learn, uh, how to make the the if you will the right the right decision or the adult decision 
for the safety of a flight in in a little bit of stressful situations. So that that sort of mentoring from my first uh, corporate captains that sort of looked after me instilled that in me, which I think it certainly helped me on that day. And then it helps me today even more in the air show business because you and I know how much pressure there is to perform in bad weather when you're tired, all of those things in the air show business every weekend. Yeah, let me talk about that uh, because I know that if I'm flying to and from an air show in my plane, there are days where I would love to get home, but I decided, no, I better not because I've been standing out in the heat all day. It's going to be better for me to be fresh in the morning, even if it's anything more than a couple-hour flight. If it's a two-hour flight, I can make it. But less, more than that, I, I tend not to do that sort of thing. Um, let, me, let me talk a little bit. Let's, there's another story you told me about, about getting home from, a, a, I believe, a competition when you were flying a pits. And that got you into some trouble, too, when you were trying to, I think the term is, altogether now, get home-itis. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I would have to say it may be the dumbest thing that I, I've ever done in an airplane. <laughs> I was young. But I have a few friends that were just as dumb as I was. Um <laughs> So we were. Are you going to name them, Michael? You should because you're putting your name out there. Uh, no, I'm not going to name them. Nobody, <laughs> nobody would know them anyway. It's okay. okay. They're all a bunch of local aerobatic pilot friends of mine. <laughs> okay. Um, so we were flying competition in Red Lion, New Jersey, and that's just down there uh, in that beautiful part of the country, down near Lakehurst and and in that area in McGuire Air Force Base down there south of New York. And the the contest was was finished and we were flying home. And this is probably 1989 or 90, probably 1988, 89, 90. So you didn't have a, you didn't have flight. You didn't have anything but the weather briefer or, you know, I call my dad at home and say, hey, what's the weather, dad? And um, so you just didn't have the picture of what was going on like you do today. It's amazing what we have to today as tools. And so um, myself and three or four of my friends all took off in our pit specials, which, by the way, have about – Oh, call it an hour and a half of endurance on a good day, maybe an hour and 45 minutes. So we so were in a pits S1, an, a single a pits seater. S1, yep. And all my friends were in their pits S1s. And so, you know, we have, let's call it 45, an hour and 45 max range, right? So you want to be on the ground in like an hour and 20 minutes. And that puts us right at the limit of the range of a pits coming from New Jersey um, back home into Massachusetts. So we had the four of us were all based at different airports within about 20 miles of each other, 25 miles of each other. And so we took off and we all circled up and then we went up the New York court up uh, the corridor, which was really, really fun up the Hudson. And then it started to get some puffies and, you know, as you do, you're like, oh, let's go above the clouds because it's bumpy down here at, you know, 1,800 or 2,000 feet. And so we climbed up on top and now we're at five or 6,000 feet. And what ends up happening is, oh, now it's sort of scattered 
to broken Uh-oh. and now it's overcast. Oh no. Right? And, and at the time, you know, I don't even, I don't think I had a transponder in the airplane at that time. It doesn't even have an electrical system. It, well, it has an electrical system, but no alternator. All you do is you have a starter and a battery. And, uh, in those days you had a, like a ICOM handheld radio, which is tie wrapped to one of the tubes and, <laughs> and it, and it connects to an external antenna and that's your radio, right? So oh, no. you're, you're running the radio off of its battery and then you're running up. I had an Apollo 612 Loran that would run off the airplane's battery. And it was, you know, again, all you were doing on the pits at that time was just starting the engine and running the Loran. So there's not a big draw on it, but again, you have a limited supply of batteries. So, so my you, friends were you're, so you're flying in a little airplane that is ill-equipped to go down through an overcast because you don't even have so much as an attitude indicator, right? No vacuum yeah, pump. There's nothing, right? And and anybody who's ever been in a pit special, there's a compass there, but the compass is only for certification because it like it never reads, right? Um, it's all there's all metal in there, so there's really <laughs> there's no navigation other than you know the Apollo six twelve Loran, which back in the day, man, all you needed was your track and your bearing, and you matched up those two numbers, and off you went, right? And you would know how far you were, and so. Here's the four of us cranking along, and you you start going, and you're like, oh, there's a hole up there. And then you get to the hole, and you're like, oh, it's actually just a shadow. Oh, and no. Then, like, all right, let's keep going another couple of miles, and oh, that's a shadow. And you keep going another bunch of miles, like, okay, that's a shadow. And so now, here the four of us have been on top of a layer for probably 30 minutes or so. So... I'm going to say that's probably 60 miles, right? So now it's it's essentially too far to turn around and go back because we're getting really low on fuel. And as you know, if you've ever been on top of an overcast, you kind of lose situational awareness of where you are, right? You don't have an iPad. You just have a chart. and But the chart is meaningless if you can't see you know, a sectional chart. Precisely. Which, which is meaningless if you can't see the ground. And right? you also are flying an airplane that if you're not ha- if you don't have your hands on the stick all the time, it will not want to stay straight and level. No, it definitely won't. So you're just basically at that point we are navigating towards towards our home airport and then hoping that we're going to find a hole. And you um, and you did then, but you then your your descent was one that I would say would be really challenging because if you go through that hole, you don't know where the ground is at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we had a pretty good understanding of what the clouds were below us. We could get the atises and things like that of airports around us, but we were we were now probably down to like, you know, seven, eight gallons of fuel, which you know, in a pits, you 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 know less than five gallons, and you're you're into your thirty minute reserve, right? It probably, if you want to pull it back, you can get it to burn about, you know, eight gallons an hour. I think at that point, I had a hundred and eighty horsepower airplane, so it's probably burning eight gallons an hour in cruise. Um, and we were, we knew we were in Massachusetts. We weren't exactly sure where we were, but we found again, like, is it going to be a hole or is it a shadow? We got there 
and it's a hole. But I, I promise you, that hole wasn't much bigger than the wingspan of a pits, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so I can't remember which one of us was first, but we're like, this is our chance. And I can remember, uh, just like the scene out of a World War II movie, it was like, pull the throttle to idle, pitch the thing over, and my God, it must have felt like we were going vertical through this tiny, tiny hole in the clouds. And thank God you're in a pits biplane because it doesn't, it won't accelerate so fast, but you know, you're, you're coming out the bottom of the clouds going really fast at idle in this pits. Cause you probably, we probably went through, I don't know, a 1500 foot vertical hole. Um, and then came out the bottom and the four of us never saw each other again when we got to the bottom of the cloud. So we <laughs> we had all come out on different headings. And, man, we were, you know, as, as scary as it was on top of the clouds, it was beautiful, right? There's not a bump in the sky. It's just beautiful outside. The sun is shining. And then literally 10 seconds, 15 seconds later, we come out of the bottom of this cloud deck, and it's... I don't even know. I'm going to say 700 foot overcast and raining and miserable and oh, dark. Boy. And you're in and Massachusetts where it's semi-mountainous probably. Yeah. So we were – so I remember one of my friends was based at Fitchburg. So I think we were going – and because where I was at Hanscom, that was close to the Bravo. So we didn't want to, we didn't want to navigate towards there because we didn't sure whether we were going to put – penetrate the Bravo or not. So we went to Fitchburg, which is like 20 miles west of Hanscom Fields out in more in central mass. So I remember we come zooming out of the bottom of the clouds and we're all like, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? We're like, I don't know. I'm over here on this highway and I'm between these two hills and everybody's like, yeah, good luck. See you later. I'll call you tonight. And so here we all are on the radio, but we're all basically a little bit confused as to where we are in the world. And I got on top of people that might know Route 2, which is the highway that goes from Boston out to the west through Springfield, Mass, and everything else. And Route 2... Um, you could tell you were over Route 2? Yeah, just because I knew I was in the general area. And, you know, now I'm... I'm IFR. I, I'm yeah, I'm home. <laughs> I follow so roads. I kind of know where I am, and um, stupidly, I would say I was probably pretty proud of my um, scud running skills at the time, which shows you what an idiot I was. And <laughs> um, so now I got on Route Two, and I started to follow it east, and but I was west of Fitchburg, where my buddy was landing, and. It was so the weather was so bad and I had to I had to be so low that, you know, essentially you could and these are only two and three hundred foot sort of rolling hills that the highway goes over. But uh, I could see the cars coming over the crest of a two or three hundred foot hill and uh, you could see the the headlights of their on the cars because it was so dark. They all had their lights on back in that. Oh, my God. So I just basically said, well, I know exactly where the road goes. So just stay on this road. And for about 10 or 15 miles going east, it was probably 
oh gosh, I don't even know, five or 600 foot overcast because as the, as the road rose up, I stayed level and I was just a couple of hundred feet above the road following in this pits with, you know, now probably seven gallons of fuel left. And I had to do that for probably a good 10 or 15 minutes. And then the terrain, um, the terrain went away from me and then I got, and then the rain started to dissipate. And once the rain dissipates, obviously the visibility goes up. And then I landed in Hanscom Field, which would be no big deal whether, you know, 1,200 foot overcast and 10 miles visibility. But it's one of those things where that was, as a kid, I was young, right? So, so I was about 18 or 19 years old, 19 years old probably. That was a huge lesson. Um, well, tell you what, let, let's take a break. And we'll come back and let's go through the lessons on both of those scenarios because this is a, you've got some great stories here, but there are some very important lessons to be learned. We'll be right back. As pilots, we're taught never to assume the tanks are full or the plane is safe. And when you rent, never assume you're covered by your flight school or FBO's insurance. Their policy is to protect them, not you. Injure someone or damage property and you could still be sued. Bend a wingtip and you could still be responsible for the deductible or more. A quick visit to avemco.com slash flying can protect you with Avemco renter's insurance for as little as $95. Visit avemco.com slash flying or call 800-338-8705 today and be sure you're covered the next time you fly. Now, back to ILAFT. We're back with Michael Goulian, who has recounted a couple of stories of situations where he learned some good lessons. One was because of a mechanical, and the other was because of what? I don't know, probably stupidity, I guess I would say. <laughs> so so let's talk, let's go back to your story here about the getting the gear down and how you deviated from... Uh, uh, what would be a published missed approach that I'm sure you briefed, but you decided to exercise some pilot and command skills. Let's talk about that lesson first, and then we'll talk about the ones in the pits. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's funny. We talk about these two stories. I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of one and not so proud of the other. And, uh, <laughs> and the, the gear story is one that, uh, you know, I am proud of. There's a few there's a few situations in my career that I can think back upon that was like, Hey, that was a pretty good, that was a pretty good aviation decision to make right there. Um, and sort of it, it shapes who you are. It's a, it's a lesson in a positive way. And I realized that, you know, and I'm not sure how many people really understand that when you're flying IFR, your task saturation level goes up no matter how experienced you are, no matter um, you know how proficient you are. Ask any guy that's or a girl that's trying to land a, a fighter on the back of an aircraft carrier. Uh, they'd rather do it in daylight visual conditions anytime as opposed to being in the weather, right? It just makes everything harder. And so uh, on that day, I realized that trying to deal with the gear situation was going to, it was going to challenge my skills. Uh, and so 
I tried to put everything in order and stack everything in my favor for a successful outcome. And that was getting vectored, asking them to get you above the clouds, giving you a hunk of airspace so you could sort out the problem and then get back in. So, all right. So pilot in command, if even though there's a published missed approach, if you need something different, you you asked them or did you tell them that you needed something different? So I, I told them, right? I, I uh, <clears throat> and if there's air traffic controllers listening, I don't know whether they'll like that or not, but there's, I try to teach that with my vision jet students as well. There's a, there's a big difference between being in the flight levels and being down low. And at, at a point, you know, you don't ask for a deviation around dangerous weather. You tell them I'm going to go 20 right for weather and, you know, and let them say, no, you can't. But I, I tell them what I'm going to do because I'm, I'm trying to keep my passengers and, and my airplane safe. And the same in that in the same in that situation with the gear, I told ATC like, hey, for me to remain safe to deal with this situation, I want out of the clouds and I don't want to think about navigating the airplane. Can you people do that for me? And they were like, yep, controllers are awesome, right? They are, they are so good at their jobs. They are they are so switched on all the time, especially if you've flown in in the Northeast corridor. Our <laughs> yes, controllers indeed. up here pretty quick, right? They're they're great at what they do, and I think they. I would bet that a, a great controller can read the pilot's voice. They know when you need assistance from them, uh, and they'll help you. And and so I think that's the thing: is air traffic control is your friend. Use them when necessary to help you fly safely. That's excellent, excellent info. And I have flown up in the Northeast a fair amount, and I do hear that. And 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 I they absolutely know your voice. If you are if you can read back their instructions and do it precisely and concisely, that that boosts their confidence in you as a pilot, whether you're flying a Cherokee 140 or a Learjet. Yep. Yep. All right, let's move now to your situation where you may not have made the decisions great. Uh, and this is something that, that I know has taken lives, get homeitis, when people need to try to push into situations where they are not ready. And the, I guess the, the classic one is John F. Kennedy Jr. But without getting into that situation, let's talk about your, your guys, your, the four of you, and your very, very limited capability airplanes, even though you're great pilots. What kind of things did you learn after you, after you got on the ground and sort of assessed what had happened? Yeah, well, you, you said something there, Rob, uh, that we were all great pilots. And I have to say, even great pilots make bad decisions. Right. And and on that day, the four of us made a bad decision. And the decision was to, to go above the clouds, uh, which turned from broken to overcast. And then to make things worse, let's just keep on going. Right. And so um, that was just it was really dumb. And you, you look back on your career and you're like, hey, there by the grace of God, go I. I don't know what I would have done if we didn't find that hole. Um, and so in every pilot's career, there's a little bit of luck, right? And, uh, and we were lucky that day. And, and so we all feel some pressure to perform, whether it's 
coming home from an air show, flying in an air show, flying with passengers on an airliner or a corporate airplane, or just taking your family on a, on a vacation that's scheduled. And, you know, when the day arises, if you don't feel up to it, then, then really you shouldn't. And, and it's funny when I was dating my wife, I say, Hey, I'm going to be home, you know, at five o'clock. And she would say, well, is that airplane time or is that real time? And I'm like, no, that's airplane time, which means I could be home at five o'clock. I could be home at seven o'clock or maybe I'll be home tomorrow morning. Who knows? Right. And, and, um, it's funny. A lot of people ask about, you know, my relationship with my wife and support of, of, from my family, because I'm away a lot. Right. And there is a huge temptation to come home. Uh, because we are gone so much and I'm not I'm not actually uh, able to spend as much time with my family as I wanted. But my wife is a professional pilot's wife. And now that she's a pilot herself, she understands. So one of the things I think that helps alleviate the get home-itis thing is to have a family that understands the challenges with which – flying a light airplane brings and that's really one fatigue and two the weather because you're doing it by yourself so um i think for all the listeners having your family understand that it's more important that you come home safely when you feel the time is right than on a scheduled time because that's a trying to alleviate that pressure is a big deal, I think. I would agree with that. And I will take it one step further in terms of how I get to air shows. I typically would travel on a Thursday. Now I have the organizers hold a room for me on Wednesday in case I have to leave a day early to get there. And then when it's time for me to go, I I plan my work schedule to give me an extra day to get home and not and not be pressured to be in my office doing some recording or whatever it happens to be. So I I build in what ends up being a longer work week than normal, but it also builds me some gives me some insurance that I don't have to have the kind of pressure to get home that a lot of people feel. Yeah, that's pretty awesome actually. And you so your safety valve is in your planning. Right. And I think, Rob, that is so cool because I think a lot of people don't do that. Right. They just, hey, I'm going to leave on Friday and come home on Sunday night. Well, that doesn't always work out that way. And and if you have an appointment at nine o'clock on Monday morning to be somewhere, well, there's there's a pressure to get home no matter what the weather is uh, or no matter how you're feeling. And I think doing what you just said is super important. There are great lessons to be learned, no matter whether you're flying a Cherokee or an Experimental or a Learjet or a Pitts or a Cirrus. Michael Goulian, thanks for being on iLaft and sharing your experiences with us. Rob, it was really fun. Absolutely. I I love what you're doing. I think this is great. We all all learn from stories and we all learn from from each other. So this is a great series and and, uh, I'm proud to be on it. So thanks. 
Michael's more than 10,000 hours in dozens of types of airplanes and many types of flying have given him a very unique perspective, and I'm grateful that he was able to join us. He's a fan of the podcast, and I hope you will be too. Subscribe and set up notifications, and you'll be automatically notified when new episodes are dropped. Share it too with your friends and on social media. Or you can follow Flying Magazine on Facebook or Instagram, where we'll post new episodes so everyone can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927, I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That.